We're going to get started in Mark chapter 12 this morning. Mark chapter 12. We're resuming our sermon series entitled Desires of the Heart, where we are going through the scriptures and looking at the things in our life that so easily captivate us and capture us and become idols. We've, along the way, we've, we've looked at several things in our lives that are actually good things, things that God gives to us like relationships or careers or jobs. Um, but if any of these good things ever becomes an ultimate thing in our life, more important to us than God himself, that thing has become an idol. And we're not covering every potential idol that could be uh, in our lives. What we're doing is we're walking through a lot of the ones that we wouldn't even think of, the things that are oftentimes off the radar. And so this morning, or actually this afternoon, we're going to be talking about the idol of being right. Now, you're going to want to take notes for the people in your life who struggle with that idol, because I know you don't. But you know people who struggle with that all being right, so take good notes for them in case they want to read your notes. We're going to start in Mark chapter 12 this morning at a foundational uh, scripture, a foundational um, word from Jesus when he's put to the task and he's asked, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And in Mark 12, he responds to this question this way, starting in verse 29. He answers, the most important is, and then he quotes the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So far, so good. Pretty much a stock answer. Love God with everything that you are. Right? I'm right, I'm right with you, Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. He says, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, Jesus not only answers the question, he answers in a really profound way because he gives not one answer, but how many? Two. And what Jesus is going to show us is that there is an intimate connection between our love for God and our love for one another. That somehow, the way I love God should impact the way I love God. You and vice versa, that we don't separate these commandments, but we see them as intimately connected. Now, it's interesting, though, the way this verse will oftentimes get misinterpreted that, okay, okay, I get it. Love God with everything that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. So what we should deduce from that, then, is we need to be better at loving ourselves. Have you heard that? It's kind of a pop culture uh, philosophy out there. Like if you don't, you got to love yourself well. Now the problem with that is that the Bible teaches us that we're already pretty good at loving ourselves. For the, for the vast majority of us, we're really good at putting ourselves first, thinking of ourselves first, and loving ourselves pretty well, right? I mean, let's just use a couple maybe illustrations. Um, how many of you right now are a little bit warm? Just be honest. Okay, you, you can use a little cool air in here, right? Okay. How many of you are cold or cool and you want to turn the heat on. Okay, perfect. Thank you for your honesty. Now, now listen, don't, I'm, I'm not calling you out. What I'm illustrating is this. What we tend to do, the way we tend to see the world is through how we feel. How I feel right now. So I'm driving down the road and it feels hot in the car. I'm assuming the car is hot. And so what do I do? I turn on the air conditioner. What does my wife do? Ooh, it's cold. Why did you do that? You see how good we are at just putting ourselves first without even thinking about others around us. So we're already pretty good at loving ourselves. That's not what Jesus is teaching us. He's saying, hey, you're already pretty good at loving yourself. What I'm calling you to is to 
love God with everything that you are, and you start loving others the same way you love yourself. Paul puts it in in another way in Romans chapter 12. This is the way that the apostle Paul words it. He says this. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Okay, it sounds familiar. But then he says, outdo one another in showing honor. So it's not that I would work really hard at loving myself and then I start working really hard at loving you at the same level that I love myself. What Paul is saying is, no, 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 no. Actually outdo one another in the way you love one another. Work harder to love others more than you love yourself. Now, I'm going to take a moment to define or allow the scriptures to define love for us. And we're going to talk about that relationship between my love for you and how that idol of being right competes with that. So if we think about how to define love, okay? You go to a wedding, you're probably going to hear 1 Corinthians chapter 13 quoted, love is patient, love is kind. You've heard it before. It's a beautiful biblical definition of love. Now, it's important to understand the context that those verses are written if you read the three verses before love is patient, love is kind, the Apostle Paul is talking about our spiritual gifts. The work that God does through us supernaturally to bless others. Okay, that's a good, good thing, right? But what he says in the first three verses is if you engage in this, using your spiritual gifts, and you do it with the absence or the void of love, your spiritual gifts are going to sound like a clanging cymbal in the ears of those people around you. So think of the most horrific, annoying sound you can think of. For some, it's like nails on a chalkboard, a clanging cymbal. That's what it's going to be like to the people around you if you try to serve one another without love. Then he goes into this definition of love. Love is, verse 4, patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love, or it, does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, if you come to me and say, hey, is, are you telling me that the Bible says it's wrong to argue? Um, I would say this. If you can engage in an argument and obey those commandments, go for it. Right? Go for it. But when was the last time you were engaged in a, in a robust dialogue, a.k.a. an argument with somebody, right? and you thought you were right, and you were insisting that you were right, and then you also fulfilled this commandment to love? You can't do it. Right? My insistence that I'm right is the opposite of, it's antithetical to, it cuts against the grain of this command to love one another. If I'm going to love you biblically, right? Love isn't rude. Love is not arrogant. Love does not insist in its own way. Now, some people will say, yeah, yeah, but did you see where it says love rejoices in truth? That's all I'm doing right? I'm just rejoicing in the fact that I'm right. Now, the problem with that is that in the original language, that's not what that word means. 
Here's what that word means, rejoices. It means to congratulate somebody else, or it means to rejoice together. So unless you're both celebrating the fact that you're right, you're not doing this. You're not rejoicing in truth. You're rejoicing in the fact that you think you're right. And therefore, the other person is what? Wrong. But love does not rejoice in the other person being wrong, does it? Now, I hope you're taking good notes for those other people in your life who struggle with this. Because there comes up this question, what about in situations where I, I think, I believe in my mind that I'm actually right? What do I do? I'm locked in with you in conversation. I believe I'm right, and I believe you're wrong, but if I take another step further, I'm not going to love you anymore. I'm going to be, become arrogant or rude, or I'm going to insist that I'm right. I'm going to be insisting that you're wrong, so what do I do with that? Well, Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to go next. And I love how the Apostle Paul grounds us in the example of Christ, and he answers that question for us. What do you do in that moment where you know you're right, and she's wrong, he's wrong? Starting in verse 3 in Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul says this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Those words don't need a whole lot of defining for us, right? Selfish ambition, putting yourself first, or conceit, that's the idea of like empty or vainglory or, or empty confidence. So do nothing, church, out of, out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now that aligns with what Jesus said, right? The greatest command, love the Lord your God with everything that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul's saying it this way, consider other people more important than yourself. Okay, how do you do that? Well, there's one word in here that's the key. What's the word? In humility. In humility. What is humility? What is it? How do you define humility? Your kid comes to you and says, what's humility, mom or dad? How do you define that? Well, it's the opposite of putting yourself first, insisting that you're right, boasting, bragging, arrogance. It's the idea. It's a posture of our heart attitude, isn't it? It's, it's taking a step back in humility to put others first. So Paul's saying, here's how this has to work. If you're actually going to love your neighbor as yourself, you're going to put someone else before yourself, you're going to have to do it in humility. Just a quick check. Anybody in the room really good at humility? Okay, there we go. So we've got two in here who are absolutely horrible at it by admission of showing their hands, right? We're not, we're not naturally good at humility. We have to make a choice to be humble. We have to engage in being humble. What Paul's calling us to, he's not saying just go with the flow of how you feel in any given moment. He's saying check yourself. You have to decide and choose to be humble. Now, here's where it's going to get helpful. So he says, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, because we already are good at that. Don't just look to your own interests, but also to the interests of of others. So if I'm hot, I don't just reach down and grab the thermostat and turn it on cold. I stop. I ask, hey, is anybody else in the car hot? And everybody else in the car says, no, daddy, we're cold. I don't just insist on my own way and just crank it down. I say, you know what? I'm going to let your interests supersede my interests. But here's what he says it's helpful. He says, having this mindset or this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
And this is really the pivotal part in the passage. What Paul's calling you to is he's saying, you actually already have this. You have this mindset in the example of Jesus himself. And then he lays it out for us. Who, talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now this word grasp, it's the idea of like a, a robber breaking into a house and filling his bag with loot. He's grasping, he's filling himself up with stuff. So Jesus didn't do that. He didn't come to earth and puff himself out and fill himself up with stuff. Here's what he did. Instead, he, he did the opposite. What did he do? He emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus did not consider his equality with God as something that we would understand or grasp. It wasn't something he came to earth to prove, but he did the opposite of that. What did he do? He took on human form, the form of a servant. He emptied himself, and he was born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he, here it is again, humbled himself. He chose to be humble. He engaged in humility willingly and intentionally. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Paul's going to say, here's the key that's going to unlock this humility for you. You have to look to the example of Jesus. Well, what was Jesus' example? He points to two things. The fact that he was God, stepped into human form, and very few people saw him as such. Like it's rare in the Gospels where there's a human being who encounters Jesus and goes, what's up, son of God? It doesn't happen very often. You've got these rare moments like John the Baptist, for example. When Jesus asks him to baptize him, what does John say? Hey, I'm, I'm, not, even, I'm not even fit to tie your sandals. You're, you're not like me. You're greater than me. How about when in Matthew 16, Jesus is there with the disciples and say, he says, who do you say that I am? Peter responds with what? You're the son of the living God. To which Jesus responds, you're right, Peter, but you didn't figure this out on your own. My Father in heaven revealed this to you. Now, the vast majority of the rest of the time, Jesus was misunderstood, misrepresented, not acknowledged as deity. He, he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. Now, when they're taking Jesus to the cross, was he, the cross, was he kicking and screaming? Was he pleading his case? Was he demanding vengeance and justice? Was he saying, like, I'll get you. Do you know who I am? Do you know what you're doing? Was he, was he standing up for himself? No. Isaiah 53 says he actually was led like a lamb to the slaughter. His mouth was silent. Lived his, almost his entire life here on earth, misunderstood, misrepresented. And yet he, you don't see Jesus out pleading his case. If anything, he's pleading our case, not his own. And so Paul says, you have to look to the example of Jesus who took on humility intentionally and became like us. And secondly, he points to the cross. He says he took on death, even death on a cross. Now, in this conversation about being right, I want us to think about a couple things. First of all, the gospel tells us that hope is found in being wrong. Let me share with you what I mean. The gospel says to us, it's wrong for sin to go unpunished. That's what the gospel says. It's wrong for, for God to not punish sin. That's why Jesus took on the punishment, right? It's wrong for innocent blood to be shed on behalf of those who, of those who are guilty. That's wrong, right? 
It's wrong for that to happen. It's wrong for an innocent man to die for somebody else who's guilty. This is the gospel message. So I find myself in that situation where I, I feel like I'm right and I'm just in my, my perspective on things. What do I do? If I step forward, I'm going to engage in not loving you well. But if I step back, I might, I might miscommunicate that I think you're right and I'm wrong. And Jesus would say, what's at stake there? What are you worried about losing? The argument? What, what, what are you worried about happening if you're misunderstood, misrepresented? Or the person you're arguing with walks away thinking that they're right and you're wrong. What's at stake? What do you have to lose? Yet we struggle to let it go, don't we? I wonder how many of you um, engaged in an argument this past week. Okay, you and I, okay, we've got a couple of honest people. The humble one, he, uh, yeah, he's not only humble, but he's honest. Thank you. Okay, so four of us did. The rest of you, man, take good notes, okay, please, because those people that you know struggle with this are going to need. But the, for those of us who struggle with it, I just wonder how many of us, no show of hands, engaged in an argument on the way to church this morning or in the house this morning before we left, right? Yeah, there's an honest one, Right? And here's the struggle. Every, every person in this room on some level has engaged in this this last week. Gone to battle for the sake of thinking that you were right. We had an experience in our family um, one time where um, a complete stranger stepped in and helped us parent, which is really awkward, by the way. We were in like a public setting, Hallie and I, and the boys were arguing and the stranger steps in and says, can I ask you, a, you boys a question? And she was overhearing Hallie and I trying to get our boys to separate and to back down from their argument and that kind of thing. And she's like, hey, can I ask you boys a question? And we were like, whoa, where did you come from? And, um, and I, I think this lady was an angel. I'm throwing that out there because she disappeared. But anyway, so <laughs> she said, boys, what are you more concerned with right now? Being right or being kind? And all of a sudden, like, Everything dropped. Hallie and I were like, whoa, that was profound. And I looked, and she was gone, just poof, up in the air. <laughs> but that question she asked has guided so many parenting moments for us. When we see our boys going at it, both of them believe they're wrong. And we want to teach them that lesson that, listen, you may be right, but because of the way you're going about it, you're wrong. We ask that question, and the boys love it because they know it's coming. Hey, guys, I got a question. They're like, oh, God. Hey, are you more concerned with being kind right now or being loving? Being kind. <sighs> and they'll drop the argument. But, but that's the point here, right? That's the question we have to ask ourselves when we're engaged in, in defending our cause and standing up for what we believe is right and, and, and right, insisting that we are right and you are wrong. What's more important to you in that, morning, that moment? Being right or being loving? Being right or being kind. Because what happens is if we insist on our own way and it begins to sever a relationship, what we've just done is saying, me being right is more important than you. And that's how these silly arguments spiral out of control and become these all-out brawls and, and, and eventually for some end in divorce. 
And, and for so many of us, we can't even remember what started the argument. Can we? You been there? I don't even know where this started. I got to be vulnerable with you. We we had one of these moments in the car yesterday, Hallie and I. We were on our way to the baseball game with our boys. And we just got to the point where we were like in gridlock in our robust dialogue in the car. You know, to go any further. And we felt like we were going to be scarring our children for life. And like, oh, and we just kind of both rolled our eyes and went to the baseball game. And then my parents took the boys afterwards. So now we're back in the car, retracing our steps home. And and we started just kind of giggling because we were like, how did that even start? She's like, I think it's because Calvin asked me to play this song for him, and I misunderstood what song he was saying, and then you were trying to correct, and, and, and I misunderstood what you were, and we were like, I don't even remember. I was like, I don't know, but we were, oh, we were right here on the road, though. We passed by. We were having an argument. I can remember where we were driving. I couldn't even remember what we were arguing about. What was going on in my heart in that moment? I felt like I was right. And and me insisting that I was right, I took one step further and I became wrong. Because in that moment, being right was more valuable and more important to me than my wife. So we're chatting about this and she turns on a worship song and starts singing. She's getting her heart right with the Lord and I'm just, I'm getting frustrated. (laughs) Like, wait a second. And I, and I had to think about this morning and think about all that God has spoken in my heart as I'm preparing for this sermon. In this moment right now, what's more important right now? Being right or loving my wife? What is it that keeps us from letting go? In Romans chapter 15, this is where we're going to land this morning. We're going to start in verse 1. The Apostle Paul gives us this counsel. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings or failures of the weak and not to please ourselves. Okay, so it sounds like he's talking about kind of the same thing here, right? Not insisting on our own way, considering other people more important, trying to outdo you in honor and love, trying to love you more than I love myself. Not seeking to please myself. But that first verse, he actually says the same thing in the previous chapter. And he words it this way. um, You who are spiritually mature should bear with the, the weakness of or the immaturity of those who are not mature in Christ. So evidently what's happening in the church that Paul's writing to is the, those who have been Christians for longer were looking down upon those who were not uh, mature Christians, who didn't have all the answers, didn't have it all together. And there was some, some sense of arrogance there. And Paul's saying, what are you doing? Shouldn't you who are mature in Christ actually be more patient, more understanding, right? Like Paul's reminding them that like, you didn't become mature in Christ on your own strength, did you? How'd that happen? Which, by the way, how does that happen? Any, yeah, anybody become more mature in Christ by winning an argument? Anybody? Any of your marriages just become much healthier, like go to that next plane because you won an argument? No, no, no. Nobody ever became a Christian by losing an argument, right? So, so what's what's happening here? So. Paul is reminding those mature Christians who have been Christians for a while, if anybody understands how this works, you should understand. You who are mature, you who are strong in the faith, faith should bear with the failures and the misunderstandings of those who aren't strong, who aren't mature. Not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. To what? To build him up. 
Anybody ever been built up by an argument? Like you just walked away going, I'm so encouraged right now. Oh, it was just so edifying. I just feel like, I feel so loved right now. No, argue, arguments are not edifying. Now, I'm all about robust dialogue, discussions, hard conversations, absolutely. But what I'm talking about is when we put the gloves on or we take the gloves off and we go to battle and we say things with our words that are hurtful, that are demeaning. You know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a healthy disagreement and you and I are humbly and graciously talking through our disagreements. I'm talking about when we go to blows. And Paul is reminding the mature in Christ, your goal should not be to to get your way. Your goal should be to build him or her up. Build them up. Don't tear them down. Trying to prove that they're wrong tears them down. He goes on, he says, for Christ did not please himself, for it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's Jesus' way of saying, what was owed to you, I took it upon myself. The punishment you deserved, I took it on me. Now, I find myself in a situation, I think I'm right, but instead, I I, I feel like God's calling me not to battle with you, but to take a step back. And one of my natural responses is to go, well, that's not fair. Why do I have to take a step back? That's not fair. Listen, what Paul's reminding us of, we don't want fair. It's not fair for the Son of God to take on the form of a servant. None fair about that. It's not fair that Jesus shed innocent blood in my place. That's nothing fair about that. And Paul's reminding the church, listen, church, you don't want fair, do you? Anybody want to pay for your own sins? That, that would be fair. What, what Jesus is offering is more than fair. It's gracious and merciful. And all that he's calling us to do is say, listen, the generosity that I'm pouring out on you, pour it out on other people? Come on. If anybody should want to do that, it's those who've received my grace and mercy. If anybody should be motivated to love their neighbor more than they love themselves, it should be those who know me. Paul reminds us of Christ. And then he'll go on in verse 5. He says this, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to stop there. I like this metaphor he uses. He actually uses musical terms here to describe our relationship with one another. He said that we're to live in harmony with one another. So I don't know how many musicians we have in the room, but here's what that, that word means. It's the idea of different notes coming together in unity to where it sounds like one thing. So like Jason Martin is up here, he's singing one note. Jason Lewis is over here, he's singing a different note. Cameron is over here singing a different note, but it sounds like what? One voice. It's harmony. The guitars have six strings on them, right? When you play it right and you put your fingers in the right place, you take six notes and it becomes one chord. That's harmony. sounds like one thing. And so what... Paul is reminding us of is what's at stake here is like, listen, church, what I'm calling you to is this harmony between your voices, right? A sense of unity and unison in the way you sound. Opposite of 1 Corinthians 13, when we do things not in love, what does it sound like? Nails on the chalkboard, clanging cymbals. Like, 
this horrific noise. And what Paul is saying, yeah, but when you'll serve one another, put one another first, guess what it sounds like? Harmony. And then he lays out for us what is at stake. He says this, that you together, or together you, may with one voice, you see the unison there, glorify the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's at stake? God's glory. That's what's at stake. It's not your reputation. It's not your idea of being right. Here's what's at stake. God's glory. Now, I want us to think about that. I want to encourage you to think about that. The next time you engage in a disagreement, and I want you to ask yourself, what's at stake here? If I just take a step back and I don't have to prove myself as right, I don't have to defend my own case, I want to take a step back in humility and let my love for you be more important than me being right. What's at stake here? God's glory. Where does God's glory come from? It comes from us walking and living in harmony with one voice together. And he says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And so what God is calling us to, this, this posture of humility, he's saying, listen, this is, this is exemplified in Christ. I'm not calling you to do something even that I'm not willing to do. I'm, I did this. I humbled myself. I made you more important than me being understood. I made you more important than pleading my case where I was right and you were, you were putting an innocent man to death. I made you more important Now I'm calling you to welcome others the same way. Now let's talk for just a minute. Before we get to questions that might reveal whether or not you're struggling with an idol of being right, let's talk about when it's good to stand your ground in being right. right? So you might ask, so you're saying I should never stand my ground? I should always walk away and just let the other person think that they're right? I'll give you some situations where it's right and good and correct and God-glorifying to stand your ground. Um, I'll give you just an example how this works in our home. We have a rule for our boys. When mommy and daddy's bedroom door is shut, you don't walk through. You have to knock. A lot of real practical reasons why that's a good rule in our house. Now, and I, I, they always bust through the door, right, without thinking. They're just they're boys full of energy and ambition and don't stop to think about the rules all the time. So they'll... You know, once a week at least, they'll bust through the doors. And I always ask them this question, and, and they love it too. Um, hey, stop. They'll stop and say, is the house on fire? No. Is your brother about to die? No. And they'll turn around, they'll walk, and they'll shut the door, and then they'll knock. And I'll say, okay, come in. Because we have a rule in our house. If the door is shut, you don't come in without knocking unless the house is on fire or somebody's about to die. Okay, if those are the case, come right on in and get our attention, right? Come right on through the doors. But any other situation, stop and knock. Now, I'm going to apply that to the conversation we're having today. So here's some situations where I think it's good and right. Stand your ground. If somebody's life is at stake, okay? So you're on the phone with 911. You're trying to convince them that there was a car wreck or a building's on fire or somebody's life is at stake and they don't believe you. Insist in being right in that moment, okay? Permission. Go for it. Get their attention. I'm serious. This is really going on. In a situation where a child's safety is at stake, be the advocate for the child. Stand your ground, right? This is not a time to walk away. Stand your ground and being right. 
when the name of Jesus is at stake. Now, keep in mind, we've never been given permission to be rude or arrogant or boastful. Nobody ever became a Christian, to my knowledge, by losing an argument. So even in standing your ground, it needs to be tempered with humility and grace. Right? Don't, but what I'm saying is don't recant your faith and walk away from Christ. That's not the time to back down. Somebody's life is at stake, the safety of a child, the name of Jesus. Or when someone is trying to force you or someone else into a situation that cuts against the grain of biblical conviction, stand your ground. I can't think of a whole lot of other situations where you're going to lose something, right? And let's just be honest, we fight and argue over the goofiest little things, don't we? Nothing even comes close to the building being on fire or somebody about to die. It's about a radio station or temperature in the car, where we're going to eat. Let me lay out some questions for you to think about here as you consider whether or not you potentially are harboring an idol of being right. How do you know when you have an idol of being right? First of all, I'd say this. If you spent this whole time this morning thinking about someone you know, instead of reflecting on your own heart, you may have an idol of being right. If you find yourself struggling to let go or unable to let go of a disagreement or argument, maybe there's an idol of being right there. Or you find yourself in an argument and you can't walk away until you feel like you've been fully heard. You just got to have that next word, that last word, the final say. Potentially, there's an idol of being right. When you have a hard time letting go of being misunderstood. Now, we saw this in Jesus' example, right? Now, here's the funny thing about this. Um, so, every week, I take all my sermon notes and I send them to our admin team on Thursday, and they make corrections and proofread everything, and then they read the questions and make sure they make sense. And it's so funny because the person who was reading that question this week um, came to me and said, I don't, I don't know that you're actually wording what you mean to word here. And I said, well, I think it's worded exactly the way I want it to be read. Right? And all of a sudden, we, we, it was just so funny because it just happened in real time. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to walk away at the risk of being misunderstood. Of course, that was sarcastic. I was just kidding, Right? But in those simple, subtle ways, right, when we're misunderstood, if we're not careful, now, now seek to be clear, seek to be understood, but if, you're not, if we're not careful, there's this idol of being right, we'll press our own way. We'll go to battle to be understood. We don't see that in Christ, do we? He was completely misunderstood. So if you find yourself unwilling to let go of being misunderstood, you may have made an idol out of being right. When your pursuit of insisting that you are right causes brokenness in your relationships, you're not able to stop, get control of it, humble yourself, repair and restore. Instead, you just walk away and leave the wounds. Okay, there, there's, there's more than likely an idol of being right there. Um, I heard it this way. Um, a friend of mine who's a counselor said this. He said, you know, when we engage in conversations with people and we say hurtful things, it's a lot like having a board uh, and a hammer and a nail and driving that nail into the board, you can take that hammer and spin it around and pull that nail out, but you can never take the hole away. 
Think about that. When you allow that idol of being right to, 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 to fuel the fire and you say hurtful things and then at the end of it you just try to walk away like no big deal, right? Just pull the nails out, walk away. Like that wounds, that, that causes damage to people that you claim to love. And if you're unable to do that, to, or if you find yourself insisting that you're right and it causes hurt and you say hurtful things to somebody else, maybe there's an idol of being right there. And last but not least, um, if you find yourself collecting data or charting out <laughs> the case for your next encounter um, with somebody you disagree with, uh, you may have made an idol of being right. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? Like a couple hours later, you're thinking back through it because you just can't let it go. You're like, oh, I wish I'd have said this. Man, I hope it comes up again. And you make the mental note, right? So you're ready for that argument again. Potentially, there's an idol of being right that's driving you. Now, I want to land here today, and, 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 and surely most of us in the room on some level have struggled with this, right? Because who wants to be wrong? There's a difference between the Bible calling us to stand in truth versus insisting that we're always right. 1 Corinthians 13 says, listen, you can't engage in argument with people and also be loving at the same time. Ouch. And in that moment, what you have to ask yourself, is it more important to me to be right or to be loving? Is it more important to prove to you my case or to be kind? Am I more concerned with my reputation and what people think of me? Or am I going to put your interests before mine? I'm going to land there today and I'm going to ask um, in just a minute, our worship team is going to come back up and and I don't know how this morning, potentially, um, the word of God has stirred in you. Um, you know, the Bible actually describes itself as a mirror. And, uh, and so often, um, you know, after a sermon, somebody will come up and say, man, it just sounds like you were speaking right to me. Well, there's a reason for that, right? Because God speaks through his word, and it's like a mirror. It shows us our flaws. It shows us where we've yet to be conformed to the image of Christ. And if that's happened with you today, um, I want to encourage you. We have a place to take our failures. The cross. That's what, that's what the cross is for. Jesus didn't die to save perfect husbands. Some of you husbands have, have really wounded your families this past week. Some of you moms have wounded your children this week. And you realize today, you know what? I was, I was insisting on being right. And in that moment, I was not loving my child or my spouse or my friend very well. well what do you do with those failures? You bring them to the cross. This is the message of the cross. Jesus dying for people who don't deserve it. People who chase after idols and hurt one another. This is why we sing about the cross every Sunday. And so I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer as our worship team comes up. Um, our prayer partners are going to be available in the room. If there's somebody, you, know, you want to talk to somebody before you leave, or you want to pray with somebody, that's what they're here for. Um, as we stand to sing, you may just want to stay seated and just thinking and meditating on what God's spoken to you today or jot down the name of somebody you need to call or set up a meeting with this week. Um, you may want to stand and sing, okay? I want to, I want to encourage you to respond however God leads you. Um, but first of all, let's, let's pray together. Um, Father, I thank you that your word is so clear, so revealing. God, there's a good chance that, that most of us walked into uh, this room today 
really not feeling like we struggle with, with an idol of being right. And yet, as we read the scriptures, God, over and over again, you reveal, God, how at times we can be so unloving, how at times we can be so unkind, how at times we can put our own interests before the interests of others or love ourselves more than we love our neighbors. And so, Father, this morning you've revealed that to us. And we want to thank you, God, that when our failures are exposed, we have a place to bring those failures. For the dad who's here today who maybe is realizing for the first time that words can cause pain, words, words can wound, mistakes have been made. God, I pray that that father would bring those mistakes to the cross. For the parent who's here today who realized that, you know what, in an effort to be right, I've actually wounded and, 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 and hurt my children or my coworker or my friend, we thank you, God, that today we have a place to bring those failures. Father, this morning is not about being right. If anything, God, this morning is just about how wrong we actually are. Father, thank you for loving us anyway. Thank you for loving us despite how wrong we are. Thank you for dying on the cross for, for, for people like us who are undeserving, who are wrong, who are guilty, and, and yet you did it anyway. God, this morning, we want to bring all this to the foot of the cross. God, any person here today that doesn't know you personally, God, that today would be the day that they would let go of their confidence in themselves in this world and take hold of the hand of Jesus in faith, trust in the work that Jesus has done for them, and receive this forgiveness that you so willingly desire to pour out. So, Father, would you move through this room? Would you send your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name.